Hey, I'm Brett Salyer. I'm a computer scientist. And I'm Marcus Riggs, a crypto investor. We're just two friends seeking to learn a little more about the crypto space every week and share our discoveries with you. Join us each week as we go through the evolving world of crypto and discuss everything from Bitcoin, NFTs, blockchain technology, mining, and a whole lot more. We are the Crypto Bros. Welcome back to the Crypto Bros Podcast. I am Marcus. This is Brett. Today, we are going to be getting into six things that we've learned mining cryptocurrency for the past 10 months. Uh, But first, as usual, we want to get into the news. So first, we have a follow-up article from last week where Ukraine sells 1,282 war-themed NFTs in one day. So last week, we talked about how for the Ukrainian army and civilians, um, they were basically, they made these NFTs. Uh, I don't know if they sold out of all the NFTs, all 1,282, if that's what they made or if they had a lot more. Um, But they were basically trying to raise money for uh, the Ukrainian army and also their civilians. And that sale went up earlier this week, uh, I I believe Tuesday. Uh, And they sold 1,282 NFTs raising 190 Ether or at current prices $653,000. And this is just in the first day, by the way. Uh, And this data came from the Ministry of Digital Transformation. So there's going to be more than this? Potentially more money made than $653,000? Yeah, because they're saying, at least the article says, this this was just on the first day of sales. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so I was assuming last week that this was going, that they could possibly raise millions of dollars from this. Uh, It doesn't necessarily look like at the moment that they're going to hit that. I don't know what, like, the live number is since this is, like, technically day five, day six of this sale. If if the sale's going on, I don't know if it is. Um, But just in the first day, 653,000. So I think it's it's fair to uh, assume that it's quite possible they'll go over a million dollars. Which is really cool because this is obviously for a good cause, and I'm sure that's why many of these people bought these NFTs. These are actually, I'm on the website now. It says that each NFT cost 0.15 ether, so it's not like it's a like like an auction or anything like that. Like all of them at a flat rate. It's what it says. It says. Uh, this collection is here to preserve the memory of the real events at given times during the war, to spread truthful information across the digital community in the world, and to collect donations in support of Ukraine. Each NFT will cost 0.15 Ether. If you change wallets, you need to refresh the page. So That's weird because if you do the math, so it says sold 1,282 artworks for 190 Ether. That comes out to 6.74 Ether per NFT. So I wonder what, I wonder if there were like a couple big ones they sold out of the gate that were like, you know, like 50 Ether or something like that. But either way, like, either way, if we're, if in the, at least in the NFT space right now, if we're being honest, 0.15 Ether is, is, that's not that crazy to ask for. That's, That's like gas fees. (laughs) The <laughs> 0.15 ether that'd be uh it's like five six hundred bucks yeah i'm just kidding it's not that high yeah still five five six hundred bucks though i mean it's definitely for a good cause and that's not like a crazy amount of money to be asking for especially these days good lord uh, honestly if i ever considered buying an nft it would probably be one of these because it's reasonably priced it's like one of the bigger moments in history it's almost like it's like a time it's like capsule. a time capsule thing, yeah. Like you have legitimate proof on the blockchain that you lived through this world event. 
Yeah, honestly, like if I so like I'm not like, you know, freaking rich over here when it comes to like how much crypto I have. But, you know, if I had like five or ten Ether, I'd probably buy at point one five Ether. I'd probably buy one or two, one or two of these and just hold them for, you know, history's sake, basically. It's true. Um, I feel like this has more worth than, you know, like. Board Ape Yacht Yeah, Club. like <laughs> random weird pieces of art. I don't know. It's just. You guys, at this point, if you follow us, you, you know our opinions on this space. However, I, I 100% uh, really like this and what they're doing and how they're utilizing the NFT space. I think it's really for a good cause. Um, and uh, if you guys want to check this out, again, I left a link in last week's video when we covered this. And I'll leave the same link if you guys want to check it out in uh, this week's video. So, second article of the day, we have SEC proposes new crypto rules for exchanges to protect users from hacks. So, the Securities and Exchange Commission, or as we all know, SEC, is outlining new cryptocurrency accounting standards that would protect crypto assets held by companies from users against hacking losses. This move comes from as more trading platforms allow users to deal in crypto and hacks continue to occur. In a new accounting bulletin uh, published Thursday, the SEC said there are risks with safeguarding crypto assets and noted that crypto assets changed hands and prices very quickly, making them different to protect than more traditional financial assets. The SEC also noted that there are far fewer regulatory requirements for exchanges or companies holding crypto assets on behalf of users. So obviously they're pointing out some specific uh, coins here. Um and that they may not be complying properly with regulations increasing risks for investors. So again, SEC propose. So again, I think personally, I, I I feel like I've said this a little bit like a broken record now. I think this is going to be we're going to start getting articles more and more like this where you're going to see the SEC taking action, and I think it's basically going to be nibbling in a sense where you see the sec does a little something here and does a little something there and instead of the sec basically coming down and just you know just um you know breaking the dam and just having like you know the a bunch of uh regulations come out and just crack down on crypto you're going to see them taking small little actions here or there that are going to really add up su substantially over the next three to five years yeah and while this is all good, I find it hard to believe that hacking is a regular occurrence. Like, is it is it the exchanges being hacked or the individuals holding wallets? Because if it's individuals holding hardware wallets or even, like, software wallets not through an exchange... I, I feel I, like they're saying both. Unless it's, like... Unless you're just, like, incredibly... I don't want to say stupid, but just, like stupid no <laughs> you can fall victim to phishing attempts and not be stupid you can just be like ill-informed or uh, Ign just, just ignorant to how some of these attacks work and but with crypto it's hard right because there's a lot of 2fa involved you have seed phrases and things like that it's, it's hard to just give people all your crypto yeah. so i don't know I th so I think the SEC, so again, the SEC is going to approach it as they're trying to keep everyone safe in terms of the user. You know, we're trying to keep investors safe. You know, they're almost like they're, they're our mom coming by and patting us on top of the head. 
But I think the approach that the SEC is trying to take is they're trying to get into regulating uh, these exchanges. And if they can get a good hold on regulating these exchanges, then they're going to automatically have a good hold on what they can and can't do with the actual users using the exchanges. So I think the SEC is basically taking a top-down approach on how they're trying to go about beginning to regulate the crypto space. At least that's kind of my two cents on what I think their strategy is and is going to be moving forward. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I think we're going to see more of this coming. So just expect more SEC articles and more SEC announcements because, I mean, we've all been waiting on this for years at this point. We've waited. All right, when's the SEC going to start cracking in? When they're going to put their two cents in? So we're starting to see the beginnings of that now. Uh, the third article of the day is one in five adults have invested in, traded, or used cryptocurrency, NBC News poll shows. So That's pretty big, actually. Yeah, it's actually a little more than um, one in five. It's actually 21%. Uh, but it says among... Uh, there's three points the article has. So one in five Americans have invested in, traded, or otherwise used cryptocurrency... Among the demographic groups studied, men between the ages of 18 and 49 were the most apt to say they've dabbled in crypto. Hey, that's us. <laughs> At a rate of 50%. So 50% of men from the ages of 18 to 49 have dabbled in crypto. That means if you think about that, but only one in five Americans have dabbled in crypto, it means women have no interest in crypto. <laughs> it means men know what's up. Yeah, bros. <laughs> uh so there's not really a lot to talk about here. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, here's here's another one for you. Forty yeah, forty percent of Black Americans say that they have traded or used crypto, while forty two percent of all people between the ages of eighteen to 30, 34 said the same. The fact that twenty one percent of the one thousand Americans polled said that they have uh, at least once used or invested in crypto shows how much the relatively young industry has taken off in recent years. I agree. Digital assets have spread as Capitol Hill works to introduce new rules for the market. So, like I said, not a whole lot to talk about here, but I think it's just cool. Um, and obviously, I think over the next five to ten years, this number is probably going to double, if not more. So, exci uh, yep. exciting stuff. It's good to see progress being made in the land of crypto. Yep. So, there were six things. I don't know if we're going to get all the six things today, but we're going to try. So six, there's six things that we've learned mining crypto. And for anyone that didn't watch our first episode, um, we basically talked a little bit about, you know, how we met our crypto mining journey, how we got started. So for a little bit of background, we got started last May. Yeah, it was last May. It yeah, was, somewhere around there. Yeah, it was. I actually have a picture of you and your baseball outfit drilling into the wall those outlets oh yeah uh, and it, it, i had the date on that it was may 14th so i just say may um okay. so may last year so it's coming up on 11 months now actually um may last year we started we wanted to uh do a basically a litecoin farm and all of our machines are uh, l3 and l3 plus or l3 plus and l3 plus plus miners asic miners yeah yeah asic miners which for anyone that doesn't know that we'll get to that in a minute um, but again, we started, Brett knew a lot more than me. I knew a little bit, but 
as in any business venture, you know, you bump your head and you learn some stuff along the mm -hmm. way. So for anyone that was interested in getting into the crypto mining space, I thought it would be valuable to talk about some of the things that we learned. And hopefully you're either more informed or, um, you know, you basically sidestep some of the things that we had to bump our head on to get right. to a place where the waters were calm and it was basically just a form of passive income that it is now. Yeah, we're by no means experts in, in what we do here. Um, there's still a lot of things we could probably do better. Uh, we were talking briefly about this before we got started, but um, the firmware we're currently using is called, uh, what was it, Hivon? I think it's Hive OS, so like operating system. So yeah, it's... Hivios? Hive, Hive, however you want to say it. It's made by Hive, Yeah. Uh, hiveon.com. And they make uh, firmware for all kinds of things. You can you can hook it up to GPU farms. You can install it directly to uh, ASICs, kind of like what we did. Um, it's not been super reliable for us, but we'll get to that in a moment, I'm sure, when we talk about the, the, the differences between the firmwares and stuff you can get. Yeah, I'm still thinking it through, but I may either go back to the default firmware or I'll, what I'll probably end up doing is I'll slowly but surely start shopping for other firmwares and see what they have to offer. And if I cannot find like anything, then I may just go back to the default firmware. But I don't know. That's that's kind of, that's a decision that's very much uh, in flux. But sure. the first thing that we wanted to talk about that we kind of had to learn about was network difficulty. So for anyone that does not know what the heck network difficulty is, it pretty much solely relates to um, crypto mining. It doesn't really have anything to do with the price of the coin itself. It doesn't have to do with price movements of the coin itself. It specifically has to do uh, with the miners of the network. And I would actually say it specifically has to do with proof of work mining. I don't think difficulty has anything to do with proof of stake or other forms of consensus, at least not to my understanding of proof of stake you can correct me on um, that if i can wrong. i can look into that real quick i actually have not looked into that sometimes like we'll be doing the podcast and my my brain starts drifting and then all of a sudden i realize i don't know something <laughs> um but anyway so for anyone that doesn't know what uh network difficulty is when you're mining a coin for us we mine litecoin so network difficulty is basically how difficult it is um, for your group of miners or the network rather to mine a block. So you can get pretty, um, you can get a little complicated with this if you want to, but you, we, you don't really have to and I don't think it's really necessary um, for you to understand the basics of network difficulty. So we probably won't really go into the specific details, but basically what network difficulty is, is for the reward you have, you, it, there's a reward that's given for a block, right? So for this Litecoin, I think it's six, six and a quarter, six and a half Litecoin, or is it twelve? Um, hold on, Litecoin. It's like double reward. Bitcoin. Twelve and a half right now. Okay, so so for it's twelve and a half. So this is the reward that is given for the block. Now, unless you're solo mining and you come across a block. Um, you're not going to get this whole 12 and a half because if you're in a pool, you have a bunch of other players that are also trying to get this block as well. So all of you basically agree together when you're in a pool. You say, okay, whoever gets it, we're all trying to work towards the same thing. Let's all split this up according to how much we're working on 
getting how much effort basically we're which you could equate to hashing power we're going to put into getting this block so if i do 90 percent of the work doing whoever finds the block i'm going to get 90 percent of the reward that's right. the, that's the simple way and of thinking about it. it it varies a little bit from pool to pool um there's different types of rewards that you can get depending on the pool that you're in um the pool that we're in is called litequinpool.org they use a pay per share reward system which means that each submitted share is worth a certain amount of litecoin since um based on your computing power how much how much effort you contributed to the pool um they also have a really nice thing called uh well i don't know what they call it but they basically give you if you go to litecoinpool.net's website, they will show a number in the top right corner, and it says, right now it's 300% PPS. So it's if you scroll over that, it actually says it's paying shares 300% of Litecoin's profitability. So you're getting 300% more than you normally would. And this is because of things like merge mining with coins like Dogecoin and things like that. Um, if you go in there, they'll tell you like how this ratio changes, um, b basically right here it says all else being equal the higher the PPS ratio the more light coins you earn they say long answer PPS ratio of 1 corresponds to the expected earnings of a light coin solo miner in an ideal world without taking into account aspects such as orphan blocks uh, you don't need to worry about that then they say we, ex we say expected earnings because mining is a random process and is therefore impossible to know beforehand uh, exactly how much miner will earn uh, in a given amount of time, thanks to merge mining, the pool can achieve a PPS ratio higher than 100%. So right now it's 300%, and that's because of merge mine coins like Dogecoin. So usually when those types of coins increase in value, the PPS will tend to go up. Um, but PPS is just one of the compensation methods. There's things like uh, pay per last in shares um, and things like But PPS is becoming kind of the more popular one. Right. So... To rewind a little bit, so that that was a, a little bit of a, a a touch on what PPS is in relation to mining. For the network difficulty side, though, an easy way to think about it is the more the more miners you have on the network that are trying to get this magical twelve point five Litecoin reward, um, the less reward you're going to have because basically the more people that are going to get a little bite of that reward. So. You know, if you have a hundred people getting trying to get that twelve point five Litecoin reward, they're going to get more of a reward than a thousand people trying to get that twelve point five Litecoin reward. Sure. So network difficulty going up is basically just a representation of that reality. So if network uh, difficulty goes up, that means more miners are on the are on the network trying to get this reward, trying to basically mine a block. And if network difficulty goes down, it means you have less miners on the network uh, for whatever reason, whether, you know, you have like a China ban where all of a sudden a bunch of miners have to go offline. If you actually look Bitcoin, Litecoin, basically any proof of work um, network, if you actually look when the China ban happened in the difficulty chart, you can just see this massive spike down in the difficulty. And that's because... China had this ban where they, they're basically saying you're not allowed to mine um, any cryptocurrency whatsoever. So you had a bunch of miners go offline and therefore the difficulty went down. So you had more people that were able to basically 
take part in this share of mining the block. So people got paid a lot more. And you might ask yourself, why is this important? Um, because it may not seem apparent when you try to first get into crypto mining of any kind, but it, it affects your profit margins. And actually, de network difficulty can make certain miners obsolete. And they have. And yeah, they have, especially in Bitcoin, because the amount of people joining the Bitcoin network um, as a miner has increased so dramatically. The miners that were at one point, um, well, here, let, let, think about it this way. You used to be able to mine Bitcoin on a CPU. You will now lose money if you do that, because the amount of work your CPU is going to have to put in, even, even if it's putting in its all, it's going to cost you more in electricity than you are going to make mining. The same for GPUs, mining Bitcoin specifically. And then that's why ASICs came about because um, it's a special device made specifically for mining Bitcoin. Now, when these miners get to a point where the, the network difficulty becomes so difficult, the miners themselves cannot put out enough hashing power to compete with the rest of the network it's going to become inefficient to run that miner because the amount of hashing power it puts out is not going to be enough to compensate for the cost in electricity that it consumes so and that's basic this is, that's the basic math equation you have to do when you're using asics less to an extent with gpu miners but especially with asics there, there's a simple game of math you have to play and that math goes something like this. It costs me this much in electricity to run the miner. So say that's $5 a day. For, we'll take a round mm -hmm. number. If, you, if, if, what, if the amount of work that the, um, if the amount of work that the miner is adding to the network in terms of value is not at least $5 a day, then you're going to be losing money. So that's what happens to some of these miners. It's not that they don't make money. It's that they're losing money. So they may, they, because, uh, because it's it's so difficult to mine on say the Bitcoin network or even the Ethereum network for example, because the difficulty is so high, uh, you know you may you may be using five dollars in electric per day, but the problem is is there's so many other miners on the network that your cut of the reward is so small that you're only getting paid say a dollar fifty a day for the work that that miner is doing. Mm -hmm. So it makes these miners completely obsolete, and you can actually like. Uh, you can actually like Google pictures of certain miners that have become like obsolete. You'll just see them like gathered in these um, crypto uh, mining farms, and they're basically just like in a pile. Right. And basically, what these miner, what these uh, mining farms will do is they'll basically either sell out the parts, or they'll use the parts that are sometimes inter exchangeable with other miners. So you can have like better miners basically in the same model line. So for instance, you can have L three plus or L three plus plus. Um, uh, but basically what you can do sometimes is you can take a control board out, you can replace it with another one. So basically they just become almost like cars in a junkyard and you're just taking some of the parts out and replacing them. Or you literally just got to throw the thing away. Yeah. Or the third thing you can do is you can assume, okay, this is a massive dip. And then once this coin recovers, this will become profitable again. And then I'll either sell it. Or I'll, you know, use it again until it becomes obsolete again. Sure. Or it's kind of a way of like, like, for example, when you, when a miner becomes obsolete, it is not guaranteed to stay, to stay obsolete. 
like the network difficulty can go down. It doesn't only go up. So if a whole bunch of people left the network, like Mark was saying earlier, um, as was the case with China, there's a huge spike down. A lot of miners that were obsolete at that point may have, may have been um, profitable again. So you may not want to throw it away. You may want to keep it around in case you expect the market to sort of take a, you know, a, a downturn and you can hop back in and start making some more money. Um, and this is but, one of and this is one of the things I've been thinking through. So obviously, Litecoin miners, I don't think I've heard zero evidence that Litecoin's ever going to move away from proof of work, especially since it's trying to mirror Bitcoin, basically. And I don't ever see Bitcoin moving away from proof of work. Um, what I've been thinking through, and this is, I feel like if you're thinking ahead far enough, every single crypto miner, especially for proof of work, and that's not like a validator for like proof of stake or whatever, every single crypto miner in their mind thinks, all right, what's my exit strategy? Because eventually, and again, this could be like decades down the road, or maybe the miners you have are, you think are more on the brink of obsolete than other miners are. Because the nice thing about these uh, crypto mining companies that make these miners is they're making more and more efficient miners. And what I mean by that is there is they are able to add more value to the network and that and that's most prominent through hashing power. They add more hashing power to the network, but they're keeping the power usage uh, the same or lower. Mm -hmm. So basically you're having this divide between the amount they're getting paid from the pool but the amount they cost in electricity. So that's basically what's happening. Uh, but some of the older models, maybe ones like 2015, 2016, 2017, they don't have that. They're not as efficient. So they're closer to that brink of not no longer profitable. Yeah, so profit margins are much slimmer with the more inefficient you are, which is why a lot of people move out to like Texas or hook up their farms to solar to to solar panels or to wind farms or you power it from a nearby river or something like that where it's essentially free energy. Or you'll get some of these uh, crypto companies. I was listening to Kevin O'Leary talk about this the other day. He's investing in crypto companies uh, and a couple of these companies are moving to some of the, uh, the Nordic countries where it's really cold, uh, which this could bring us to the next point. Uh, that's really cold. And they're basically setting up farms there where it's really, really cold. And they're doing this so they can overclock the absolute crap out of their machines. And you may be thinking, okay, what the heck does overclock mean? So overclocking is basically simply ramping up the power usage uh, of the miner, which in turn will give you more hashing power. So, you know, instead of saying $5 a day for electric, you may be pushing the limits of the miner which means it's going to use more energy, which means maybe $5 a day turns into $6 of electricity a day. But you're getting at least that, at least ideally, if not more, because your hashing rate is more. So right. so your, your cut of this big block reward is going to be more because you're putting more work into the network. That's the idea. Yeah, and, and it's, it's something that you have to really kind of sit down and do the math on. Overclocking is something that is prevalent in computer gaming, um, they have competitions for who can get the highest overclock, um, things like that. And it's it's basically you're sending more power to the CPU to be able to perform at a higher rate or at a higher bar. Um, the down, I guess the trade-off with that is that 
when you give something more power, it produces more heat. When something produces more heat, it becomes less stable. If it gets too hot, the system can shut down. Um, it can become unreliable, which is why moving to a very cold climate um, it makes overclocking easier because you don't have to worry about cooling as much. If it's in a stuffy warehouse with poor ventilation in the middle of Texas, overclocking is going to be harder. It's going to be harder to maintain that clock. But if you can, if you can get some solid fans, some good ventilation, you can do that even in Texas. But it's going to cost a little more money because it's not being done passively in the, you know, the local climate. I wonder if there's a difference between, in terms of how, in terms of uh, the danger that you're providing to the miner, if there's a difference between humid heat and dry heat. So like dry heat being like Texas, humid heat being like Georgia. I don't, I wouldn't. I mean, humidity can be a problem for electronics um, for obvious reasons. Um, I know people who do extreme overclocking have to basically put putty on the board around their CPU because the condensation from having like sub-zero temps can, the, the mm. condensation can leak onto the board. So, I mean, things like that is something to consider if you're going that route. But um, overclocking is definitely a viable way to get um, more performance, especially if you have maybe an obsolete unit or one that was previously obsolete, you can overclock it and maybe start making it slightly profitable. It can be a form of you trying to stay relevant and profitable. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you think, okay, maybe I got six months left on this sucker before it, you know, it kick, it bites the dust. Uh, but, you know, one of your last stands can be overclocking. Uh, another thing that you can do on top of overclocking, which this is another thing we wanted to get to, is you can use a type of firmware um, that's other than the default firmware, which... This gets into uh, kind of the firmware we've been using lately, the Hive o -O -N -O -S? I don't know. Hive-on. Hive-on. Hive we'll call it Hive-on for sake of discussion. The Hive-on firmware for L3 Plus. Yeah, okay. Basically is okay, Hive-on firmware. So the goal of these firmwares, what they do is they try to make your miner more efficient. So this would come in the form of you either being able to have the same hash rate or a higher hash rate for the same, if not lower, electric. So, you want to say something? Well, I was oh, just okay. going to say, I mean, we've measured it. Um, we've tried a few different firmwares. The, de the default one is fine. I mean, it does what it says it does. The L3 Pluses are, so are rated to run at 800 watts uh, stock. For 504 mega hashes, which... Yeah, 504 mega hashes a second. Um... We went to something called, uh, what was it called? Bliss Z. Oh, yeah. There is a Bliss Z firmware out there um, that doesn't have a dev fee. And the dev fee is important because a lot of these third-party non-stock firmwares will come with a dev fee built in. And it's basically every time you mine something or get a reward, the dev gets a kickback. Mm -hmm. So it's like 1% or 2%, sometimes more. You can get a version of Bliss Z if you're into Litecoin mining uh, that does not have a dev fee. And we tried that out for a while. It gave us um, marginally better performance. But what Mark was just talking about is the Hivon firmware, which brought a whole bunch of really good features to the table. Um, it brought remote access because currently, if you want to be able to access your miner, you have to be on the local network, at least for these ASICs. But the Hivon firmware allowed us to remote in 
not not remote in, but we can access the 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 miner from a different a the different hive on the hive on website. You basically make an account, register your farm with your miners, and the miners populate their info on that website. And this allows you to basically tamper with your miners, whether you want to reboot them, change. Yeah, I think you can change the firmware on them remotely, or maybe yeah. Actually, actually if you, I don't know, I don't know. But anyway, it it allows you to make adjustments to your miners or to reboot the miners, whatever you're trying to do with oh, the miner uh, remotely, wherever you want. And I could do this whether, you know, if I have uh, if I have a, a mining farm in Minnesota, I could do this from Florida. I could do it from California. It's really really nice because all of a sudden hiccups and your mining is not in your farm is not going to come out of your pocket if say you're on vacation or something you can attend to it right then and there you know on your phone your computer whatever so that's a really really nice thing to have and believe me if you're mining long enough you will have miners do funky things it's almost guaranteed we've had our fair share of bs with these miners it's been I mean, I I found out today that apparently three of mine were down. I didn't know it um, because they quit reporting. I guess we were talking about how unreliable some of these some of these firmwares can be. The, the Hive OS firmware uh, can be great. Um, it works mm, some of the time, maybe <laughs> most of the time. I'm not sure. It has a built-in uh, automated process where it'll automatically individually tune all of your ASIC chips to be at its best performance for low and actually considerably lowers power consumption. So profit margins are significantly increased. It does have a dev fee, and that's why we justify it. The for, convenience, our, for our specific miners, 1.8%. Yeah, yeah. So 1.8%. And that, to me, seems worth it because... I usually, did the math. We come out ahead. Not, yeah. not by much, but enough. Right. Yeah. And that with the added convenience of not having to like I mean think about it. If your if your miners go down, you don't have remote access, you have to drive over to the warehouse, wherever it is you keep them, and manually reboot them. That's gas money, that's time. So if you take all that into account It's not a fun errand to do. No. <laughs> and especially since ASICs are very flaky. Um, especially if you get them used. I'm maybe the experience is different if you get them new. I've never been able to buy them new from Bitmain, but Post COVID, good luck getting one new. That's all I have to say, with supply chain and all that. Yeah, that we have to deal with. I mean, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's worth looking into um, a firmware upgrade. It's not. I'm gonna say if you if you're not technically inclined, it's not a straightforward process, especially if it's a third party firmware. Upgrading your firmware from like an older version to a to a newer stock version, that's not too bad. Um, you basically just go download, a, you, you look up which one you want, you probably go to their website, their website is going to have a file that you can download, and then if you're on the IP address for the miner, you can basically just import that sucker in, and it'll automatically reboot the miner with the new one. That's if it works perfectly. It does not work perfectly all the time, which I have to actually go deal with, because I have a miner, uh, I have a miner right now that's hashing. But it's not hashing on the pool, so I either need to reflash the firm. It's so you know how you have like you have like your hashing, and then you have real time hashing, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So real time hashing is zero. It says the other hashing is six hundred mega hashes. So, that, and okay. and I rebooted it like twice. So I think I need to go over there and either reflash it or just go back to the default firmware at least for now to get the thing functioning. So that could be a couple things. It could just be that it's overclocked so much that it's becoming unstable, and a lot of the shares it's submitting are getting rejected. 
So it looks like it's doing, I mean, it is hashing. It's just not, that is not translating to the pool. Or you could, something could have happened to the pool configuration and you're not actually, you don't have the, the, um. I, I redid that. The, okay, I made sure so it was the pool kosher. address was in there and everything. Yeah. yeah okay. Well. So, yeah. So, again, for, for example, literally an example that I just talked about that I have to deal with today. These are little things that come up. So, when people talk about, um, when people talk about, uh, if you ever hear anyone else online, maybe you've already been doing some research into crypto mining and they say passive income. Let me be clear. It is, uh, first of all, I don't believe in passive income. I believe in there's there's active income and less active income. <laughs> yeah. That's that's what I, there is no such thing as sipping on margaritas on a beach and money just comes flowing into you from all sides of the globe. That is not that is just not a reality for ninety nine point nine 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 percent of passive income. It's just not a thing. But all things considered, you consider your job. You can consider the thing that you have that brings home the bread right now. Crypto mining with all of its frustrations and annoyances is a relatively passive passive income. There will be weeks that go by where everything's fine. Everything's working as is. You don't think about it mm -hmm. and you're making money. But there will be days or maybe even weeks where it is a bit annoying and you have to take time out of your day that you did not foresee coming and it makes your day kind of annoying and a little bit scrambled and you have to go deal with it because you start doing math and you're like, well, dang, I'm eating away, say, five, ten dollars a day here. And if I let this go for another week, I just basically ate seventy dollars. So I kind of need to deal with this now. Yep. So the math of it really gets you to kind of step on it and not procrastinate. At least it does me. Um, but again, we're talking about the things we've learned and pretty much everything we've learned involved headaches and frustrations and bumps on our head. So, again, if it sounds like crypto mining really sucks right now, it's because we're kind of purposefully talking about the aspects of crypto mining that suck because we want you to be aware of everything if you're interested in it or you're looking to get into it. We just right. want to, again, all of the positive aspects that people talk about, a crypt, about crypto mining, it's true. It is really nice. And frankly, even in some of the frustrating parts, I do have fun, like, fixing it. Like, it's it's... It's not always annoying. Again, it's I, I, preferably I wouldn't be wanting to fix anything, but it's not fixing crypto miners compared to fixing other possible aspects of your life. It is not as stressful or tiring. You know, I I I rather be fixing a crypto miner than fixing my car on the side of the road. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So again, when we're talking about these more frustrating aspects from the things we've learned crypto mining, just remember like this isn't the status quo. Things come up, you have to deal with them, but you know, that's, that is not the majority of the time. And if it is, then maybe you need to look into maybe getting more educated in crypto mining to make your life easier. Or maybe, you know, maybe for whatever reason, you just have really bad luck. Who knows? It's it's obviously it varies depending on situation to situation. Sure. But uh, we've also, I mean, a lot of people listening, I mean, I say a lot of people listening, um, all three of you listening, um, <laughs> if you... Shout out three of you. Whoever may come across this 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 audio here or video probably is more into GPU mining than they are ASIC mining. ASIC mining, not a whole lot of people know what it is. It's nobody knows what an ASIC is. Um, and we're gonna highlight some of those differences. Um, 
An ASIC, I guess let's start out with definitions here. An ASIC is an application-specific integrated circuit, which means it was a device made specifically for this application. In our case, Litecoin mining, it could be Bitcoin mining, it could be, um, I don't know, whatever other things. There's others out there. Um, Ravencoin. Whereas like a <laughs> GPU is a uh, graphics card. It's used for all kinds of different things. A graphics card has lots of um, compute chips on them that's made it really, really good for uh, highly parallel processing of information. The Swiss Army knife of sorts. Yeah. So this is used almost exclusively for Ethereum and Ethereum-based token mining. And... This is what a lot of people, this is why there's a big GPU sort shortage because Ethereum is highly profitable and GPUs um, are, were not, uh, what they said, they weren't very hard to get. Um, they've been getting harder and harder as mining started to pick up. And but, as supply chain really comes into play. Yep, you can't mine, you can't mine Bitcoin on a GPU, you can't mine Litecoin on a GPU. Each coin kind of has its own um, hashing algorithm. So Bitcoin uses the SHA-256, I believe, and Litecoin uses an algorithm called Script. Um, Ethereum has a few that it uses. Um, Ethereum hashing. Not for long. <laughs> hashing algorithms. So there's um, SHA-3. There's KEK-KEK-256, FIPS-202. This um, is your neck of the woods. Are these very ETH basic? hash? Are these are ET the, hash? <laughs> ET or ETH hash? It's ET hash. Huh. But um, if you if you get like on uh, ET hash is like the main one, right? I mean, if you go to like uh, what's it called? Uh, the one that we were like, that you're still using. Like algorithm? No, 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 not the algorithm, the pool that you're with. Litecoin pool? No, 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 for your GPU. Oh, nice hash. Nice hash, that's what it's called, <laughs> yeah. Nice hash. The simplest way to start mining on your GPU, it's, they pay you in Bitcoin, but you're really mining Ethereum. They basically lend out oh, really? your GPU. Yeah. I thought you were lending out hash, hashing power. Well, you're, yeah, you're, well, yeah you're, you're lending your hashing power, but you're mining your hashing power is mining Ethereum because GPUs are good for the Ethereum hashing algorithms. Okay. So that's, the, I mean, ASICs are made specifically for certain algorithms. GPUs, there are Ethereum ASICs out there, but a lot of people just use GPUs because they're very versatile. If a GPU becomes obsolete for Ethereum mining like they're about to be, you could turn around and trade them to gamers for very minimal loss i think in 2023 there's going to be a massive inflow onto the used market of gpus right so i mean that's pretty much the main difference deep it's just the tokens or the coins that can be mined gpus excel at uh, mining ethereum whereas like asics um, are really good at mining specific things so you could do um script litecoin miners like we do that mine the script algorithm um like the L3s, the L3 pluses, the L3 plus pluses, um, L7s, L7s, right? Z5s, so on and so forth. 
And then you have like uh, a bunch of the Bitcoin miners. A lot of them are obsolete now, but there's like uh, the S7, I think is an obsolete one. But The D3, no, that, that might be Litecoin. I forget if that's Litecoin or Bitcoin, but D3 is another one that's obsolete. But then you have GPUs like the RX 580, that's always been good. The RTX 3070, 3060. 3080, um, 3090. 3080, yeah, pretty much anything. Most of the 30s or the 3000 series are, are, are pretty good at mining uh, Ethereum, which is why they were so hard to find, especially the 3060s. Um, yeah, Brett, how is that 3090? I, I'm just looking to get you canceled right now. He took the 3090. <laughs> yeah, I they had one for MSRP at Micro Center, and I wasn't planning on getting one, but, you know... I it just, was above sticker. I paid for it in crypto from my Litecoin mining. Isn't that satisfying? That's a little satisfying, isn't it? I mean, it wasn't satisfying watching it leave my wallet. Well, but, okay. But I was able to take that and bring it home, and when I'm not gaming, so usually at night, I just let it run. Uh, so. and, and it's a single fan? That sucker sounds like a generator yeah, in a, here. Wah. It's a freaking <laughs> Boeing taking off. But, uh, it is loud. yeah, I mean, ASICs, I, I'd argue ASICs are actually simpler to use than GPUs because with GPUs, you have to go in, and you have to set up a script. Um, you have to put in all your pool information in the script, and, and hopefully that runs. And hope, and then you also got to hope you don't have like um, a weird driver mismatch error or anything like that. Would you say the relationship between ASICs and the pool is simpler to set up than GPUs to the pool? I would. I mean, as long as you know how to find your miner's IP address um, and put that into your web browser, it's all like graphical. You just type in your pool information, and it's really straightforward okay um so in my opinion the asics are easier to set up um and they are they are a touchier though they don't they go offline easier they're a little they are a lot flakier yeah um, but if you're looking it's all it's also i i'd say cheaper too probably to set up because when you get a gpu you have to have a whole nother computer right most um, people have that though right but you can only have so many gpus really um, as uh, you have, you'd have to get like a GPU mm. riser card, or you got to um, get the the rack or whatever they have. You'd have to get a rack to mount them all. You'd have to get multiple power supplies, um, which this can get pretty intense visually because I don't like. Have you seen those like apartment mm -hmm. like tours where people come in? It looks like a freaking disco with all these like RGBs going yeah. off in these racks. Honestly, it looks pretty sick in my opinion, but it's got to be really noisy and hot. Yeah, and and that is. We can tell you right now, we have, like, what, 30 miners? 30. Well, we have 27. Total 31 in the warehouse, though. Twenty, Yeah, so 31 in the warehouse. It's it gets middle of winter, and it's a comfortable, like, 70-some degrees inside the warehouse. Yeah, no, it's... It, and, again, this is with the warehouse, you know, AC, heat, whatever you want to call it, off. Which which was great, because uh, your grandpa, who owns the warehouse... Uh, it's it's great for him because he gets to save money on the heat bill and stuff because we just heat the place up. <laughs> Which is nice in the winter. In the summer, it's loud, it's hot. I mean, the place isn't really insulated that well. I mean, yeah. it, normally it'd be freezing in there in the winter. If They'll have like a door open with a big commercial fan blowing the hot air outside. Yeah, so I mean, it, it, it can get big. That's another thing to think through if you guys are thinking of crypto mining in your room. You better think through the heat situation because I promise you, even with a GPU... You get a GPU, you get like say two or yeah, three Yeah, one G GPU, yeah. One GPU will probably change your bedroom by like two to three degrees. Or more. Like it, it, 
you may be like, oh, well, I'm making money so I can live with it. No, it, it can get to the point where you just don't want that in your house anywhere. Like, even if you have a basement, you're going to be able, if you have enough of them, you're going to hear it from the first floor. And another point, important thing, forget GPUs. If you plan on maybe going the ASIC route, like you want to do a Bitcoin miner, if you plan on doing the ASIC route, the like, look these things up. But look, whatever model you're interested in, look it up. It is noisy. There's no such thing as a quiet ASIC miner. These things are noisy. You get a couple of these in a room, your room's going to sound like construction's going on. I mean, it is loud. There is a reason outside of power consumption that our ASICs are in a warehouse. Because yeah. believe me, one of these sounds like a car on idle. Imagine 30 of these. The last thing that we're going to say, I think, and we'll just be very brief on this, is basically how to maximize your miners and your circuits so uh and by circuit i mean like your home your home uh electrical circuits like your your plugins uh your 110 volts uh coming from your breaker what we ended up doing um and this is because there is a formula that you should that you should know um and this formula is basically amps is equal to watts divided by volts Amps is how much current you're drawing um, from your breaker. Um, watts is basically the current power supply, I would say. If you're maxing out your power, it's like the L3 pluses, those are 800 watts. So if they're rated to run at 800 watts, which it says on the spec sheet that it is, then if you, you basically take this formula and you want to determine how many amps you want to be drawing, right? Because if you draw too many amps you'll trip your your breaker and that's not good because your miners will stop mining you can maximize you you can sort of maximize the amount of miners that can operate on a single circuit without tripping the breaker by being aware of how many amps you're drawing so um for example if if you're if you're uh using an l3 plus like we are and it's and it's rated to to do 800 watts. You can take the 800 watts, divide that by if you're using like your your standard wall outlet, might be like 110 volts. That's 7.2 amps. That's a lot of amps. That's one miner. So if you have like a 30 amp circuit, um, I think I think typical or uh, pretty common. Um, circuit breakers would be like 25 20 25 maybe sometimes 30 amps so you might get like three miners on a circuit maybe maybe and you usually don't want to be like right at the max right you kind of want to be under it a little bit i think there's like 15 20 percent rule i don't remember what it is for like safety yeah so what we did was we ended up running 220 volt uh, uh circuits so if you do the math, 800 watts, 220 volts, that's cutting your amp draw in half. So you've doubled the amount of miners you can have on one circuit under the same, under the same uh, circuit breaker. This is, this change, I mean, some things will change. You're not going to be able to use like standard 110 volt, you know, outlet receptacles. You have to change to what, what, something like we did, like an L630, I believe is what it was called. L630, let me... Yeah, the NEMA L630R, which the R stands for receptacle. It's it's almost like an uh, it, it looks almost like a like a dryer plug. Uh, 
but you'll want to get something like that. And then of course you'll need like an L630P, uh, which is the plug end that will plug into the receptacle and usually you have like a power strip um, at the other end of that plug where you can plug all your miners into. Um, I don't remember what the name of the cable was that we used. Was it like C... C13? C13? C13, cable? C14, I think. Yeah. So you want like a C13 to C14 cable. Um, because it's not that expensive. Typically, these L630P um, mining uh, power strips have these like C... I don't remember which is which. I don't remember which end the 14 is. One of them looks like a standard like ATX power supply connector, and the other end is like the male end of that. So you'll want something like that. And if you go to like, if you search like uh, crypto mine, let me verify this, crypto miner power strip, they'll usually come... Or in some cases, PDUs. That's that's the term you really want to look up. PDU. Um, you can you can figure out how many amps that P because a lot of these PDUs will have um, their own sort of breaker built into it. Mm -hmm. So if you look up that, it, I mean, usually those PDUs, a lot of PDUs, especially um, commercial ones, will have like these C13, C14. Um, uh, plugs, uh, receptacles built into them. Um, you just want to make sure that you're getting like high amp um, PDUs. At least something, because we the basically what we have set up right now is we have one receptacle that goes to one breaker, uh, and that breaker might be like 25 amps, 30 amps. So you want to find like a 30 amp PDU or like a 25 amp PDU. Because if you only have one receptacle, I mean, it's not as not big of a deal as if you have multiple or like maybe two or three receptacles per per outlet. But we only have one, so if you want to maximize sort of what you're getting, you can get like a like a. I think we have like 25 amp, 24 amp PDUs. 24 um, amp. Yeah. There's a couple 30 we have, but most of them we have 24. Yeah. So you might. Which fits comfortably five. You can squeeze six. Because it's like what three point eight three, yeah. So what it comes out to once you do the two twenty conversion, but if you do six times three point eight three, actually you start really creeping into that fifteen percent rule. Because if you do six times three point eight three, then you get twenty two point nine eight. So basically twenty three. So basically you're like four percent off from max. So it's not really obeying 15% that much, although you're not completely maxed out. Right. So, yeah, th that's all we would say is keep in mind that formula, and again, that's going to be... Uh, and keep in mind, when you overclock, you need to redo this math. Right, because when you overclock, you're drawing more power. So that 800 watts, you can't guarantee anymore. You need to measure how many watts you're drawing, and you can buy meters online to do this, but you need to figure out how many watts you're drawing and redo the math. Unless you're looking to get a firmware that's going to re-even out back to, even though you're overclocking, you're going to have the same power draw. Right, so Unless. you get a more efficient firmware. You know. Yeah, you got to keep in mind in this math whenever you're looking to tamper with your miner's power consumption in any way. Yeah, so I mean, it's... It's not hard math. Amps equals watts divided by volts. Pretty pretty famous formula, but um, 
yeah, I mean, just keep that in mind. And if you don't, if you, you know, if this stuff makes you nervous, talk to you. Uh, your electrician buddy or get someone out there to do it for you this it's is my going to electrician be, buddy right here i'm not an electrician but <laughs> he knows things uh yeah it was scary setting this up because it was all new to me but you need to at least consider this if you want to have any larger operation at all and if they and if you got there's more stuff we learned outside of the points we have today so if you guys want to follow up to this we'd be more than willing to bring up some other points but these we thought were the most important to talk about if you're in the business of um, being interested in getting into mining. We thought these were some of the bigger points that were most important for you to know if you were looking to get educated on the matter. So for coin of the week, so this was a, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say a semi failure of a coin. So I had high hopes for this coin based off of the elevator pitch of what I understood at first. But Brett, being the fantastic researcher he has, has has a, has a few uh, points to make on the coin. But uh, anyway, before we get into it, uh, I'll give a bit of an overview. So, Fermachain seeks to replace all written contracts governing social and legal issues by using an electronic contract platform, aka smart contracts, based on Fermachain's data blockchain. Since traditional written and electric documents are easy to forge and verification procedures are complicated, blockchain's decentralization is used to solve the problem. Fermachain can check the contract's validity through its hash function, which can be verified in an independent node. We'll, we'll get to that later. This verification process can be used as a means to resolve legal disputes. Blockchain is an effective technology that eliminates the risk of forgery in such documents. So basically what Fermachain is trying to do, which is why I was interested in this, is they're looking to give real-world solutions for using these smart contracts. So they literally say governing social and legal issues. So they're talking about things that maybe a lawyer would, would usually step in on, but a smart contract can do the job all the same, which is going to make life simple, fast, and a lot cheaper for you if you wanted to go this route compared to getting lawyers involved or something like that. And I'm not saying this would work on like every single legal issue possible. That's not the point. But there are use cases where you could use this instead of a lawyer and save a lot of money and a lot of headache, uh, assuming you know what to do. Um, but we were talking before the podcast, and Brett was bringing up some points to me on some things he considered, we'll say, mildly suspicious about the coin, um, which I actually found decently compelling and kind of raised eyebrows for me so how i came across from a chain this is not a big uh, token whatsoever this is i think it's like barely 500 maybe a little lower than five top 500 i think it was like 569 okay so five market cap yeah i found it uh because i went on coin market cap when i was looking for coin of the week uh it was trending and so i was like okay what's this thing uh i think it was like number four on trending or something like that at the time i was looking at it and I saw this as basically the elevator pitch. And I was like, now this is interesting because they're basically trying to do what Cardano is doing, but uh, I'm assuming better. Um, but there were a, a couple things Brett pointed out to me. I'll let him take those. But uh, I, I found them a little uneasing. But go ahead, Brett. Um, I, and I don't know. It's It could just be maybe I haven't looked into it enough. Um, it looks like they kind of boast... Um, a structure of three different layers, I guess you would call it. You have a service layer, which is what they're saying is their um, uh, Vermichain API that allows you 
to easily create uh, decentralized applications for this um, blockchain. And then they have their application layer, which is the development of the decentralized app on the on, on the firma network. And you have the core layer, which is what they are calling um, their decentralized data storage and uh, tendermint based on blockchain mainnet. So I wasn't super impressed with their white paper. Um, it seemed a little bit weird to me. Um, on one hand, it's seems to be lacking a lot of things um like for example there's an there's an overview that gives you a pretty good idea of kind of like what they are they have a really nice it looks like um app like decentralized app called don you hopefully i'm saying that right don don you it's basically uh their application for managing signatures and legal documents and it's basically that that app that's going to be used to be able to submit your um, legal documents and other things like that to their to their uh, networks and have it moved eventually to their data storage. And being a Chinese company, um, and it's no secret the Chinese love to hoard data and and uh, collect data and things like that. Um, and of course, that's uh, me being a little uh, suspicious right off the bat. I'm, that's probably a little unfair of me. Um, however, the decentralized data server, or storage, data storage is what they're calling it, um, wasn't thoroughly explained, I don't think. Um, I guess I'll just read this a little bit. There's, there's like one page on it in their white paper. Um, and it... And it the data storage. Oops, I just clicked off the uh, website. The data storage is supposed to be in their in their uh, core layer. What was that firma chain? Every time I click on the middle of the touchpad, it closes my tabs. Um, so their core layer is basically what consists of their data storage, as I mentioned. But they also have in their white paper. They have. All, it's not even like really a white paper. Like half of it is a how-to guide on how to set up a node. So like uh, they show you, they, they're literally showing you the code that you would need, like the API that you would need in order to make certain calls in order, and when you're writing your contract. Um, then they have things like um, how to set up a node, uh, pulling from their GitHub, running uh, a make install on their make file, Things like that. Things that I wouldn't normally see in a white paper. And then they have like one page, like I said, on their data storage. And it's basically saying millions of personal computers all over the world are constantly operated for a considerable time, but not all of their resources, especially in the case of storage capacity and network bandwidth, are currently used to the fullest extent. If the remaining storage capacities and network resources could be lent to another person at a certain price, the user could save file at costs lower than other similar file storage services. With the provider could, uh, while the provider could generate a profit without or with previously unused resources, um, and they say we've devised a decentralized distributed file storage system to provide reliable storage that protects the integrity and reliability of data. Uh, decentralization means that the system is managed and operated by every participant in the system without the central management of the file storage system. 
Um, so would you say that for you personally looking at this um, token, that it's more you're suspicious because of what they're saying or from a lack of what they're saying in terms of specificity? I just don't see enough here. Like, they have this core layer, and you have to be a validator on this layer in order for this to work properly. But, like, how many validators are there? How, how decentralized is it really? I mean, you're putting out some pretty important legal documents into this... Not only that, but the smaller the token, it's very likely you're going to have less validators, and less validators means less decentralization in the network. Right. and Which is the scary thing about some of these startup coins where they're really relying on the decentralization aspect and trying to lean into it, is when you're starting up, it's really hard to get validators you know, off the cuff like that. I don't know if there's some way to have validators that you can't access that are, like, AI-based. I don't know if that's possible. If, I, or if it is, it's very early stages. I'm sure that's coming eventually. I don't know. Then then they go on to say that peer-to-peer uh, -peer distributed file sharing systems such as BitTorrent allow individuals to upload and store files by sharing data. Um, the basic idea of these peer-to-peer uh, -peer file sharing systems is that in, in, is that an individual downloads as much as he or she uploads, um, but unfortunately such a system failed to adequately motivate the users to maintain their seeds without compensation to continue uploading their files. So, you, you know, BitTorrent, this is famous for pirating and things like that. It's illegal technically to seed these files. Um, the seeding makes your files on, that you just download on your computer available to other people. So the more seeders that are available, the, the faster your downloads are, the more available the files are, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, they're, they're saying here that there's not enough incentive our um, incentives uh, for people to continue to seed. Um, as a result, peer-to-peer -peer distributed file sharing systems do not guarantee sufficient availability of files because, you know, why would I do this if my ISP is going to shut me down, especially if it's pirated content, um, at the risk of, and the files are at risk of disappearing at any time. Um, it says that we've adopted a market system where users can buy and sell file storage space upon their individual needs. Um, in order to address the foregoing issues, including the users with files disappearing from system for various reasons. Further, the system does not require the users to maintain uploading the files in order to download the files from the system. I would like to know more about that. Um, what, is this, what does this look like? Um, and then also, they mention, I think, like one other time, or maybe it was like, yeah, they, they, then they go on to say, uh, a more detailed explanation of the decentralized data storage will be covered in an InformaChain's technical white paper to be disclosed in in future. So where is that? It's If you look on their website, this was started back in, if you look at their timeline, 2018, the 2019, 2020, 2021, it's 2022 now. They don't even have, they have Q1 on their roadmap for 2021. Where What happened to Q2, Q3, Q4? We're in 2022 now. We still don't have a more technical version of how this works. And there's nothing like there's I mean, I'm sure the files are being encrypted, but, you know, it's someone's got to take that leap of faith to become to, to push their their legal documents to this data storage server. I'm not really sure how it works beyond this one section. Maybe there's something I missed in this white paper, but 
If this is their technical white paper, it looks more like a how-to on how to set up a validator than anything else. And, like, that's most of it. So. Yeah, so from from my perspective, I think, I think this coin, or not coin, token. I think this token brings about a good lesson if you're looking to be a serious investor like I am in the crypto space. And the lesson goes something like this. If you want to get in on the cutting edge of some earlier coins, so say some that you know aren't top 10 or aren't top 25 or aren't top 50 or whatever your threshold is for established coin, basically. So for me, I saw the the cover overview, the the elevator pitch per se of Firma Chain, and I was really excited there for a minute because I was I thought, okay, this this is the type of application of crypto that I'm looking to invest in. And again, this didn't get me like to the brink where I was about to like throw money at Firmachain or anything like that. If it's actually really hard to get into, it's not on a lot of exchanges, especially a lot of notable ones. Um, but the point is, you're going to have a lot of these earlier coins or less known coins that are going to have some suspicious. Uh, I don't want to be unfair to the coin, but I'm I'm trying to use the coin for an example. So I'm not I'm not trying to bash on the coin per se. I'm I'm trying to make an example out of it to an extent. In Firmachain's case, you have a really really good idea on the surface in terms of what they say they're trying to do. But if you didn't look at the white paper, and you didn't dig in a little bit deeper underneath the surface area, underneath basically what they're trying to show you. Um, you wouldn't have realized a lot of these things that aren't adding up um, for Brett and now me and Brett once he showed me these things. So I think it, I think Fermachain can be a really good example of make sure before you invest in early coins or coins that are less known that you think have the potential of blowing up, make sure you do your research and then some. Uh, because I would hate for anybody to get into early coins like this and then they just get totally destroyed because there was just one aspect they didn't look into or just or if they would have just done dug a little deeper they would have seen xyz that was suspicious right so uh, again I, i'm not trying to bash on from it from a chain could be a fantastic token and they've just done a really poor job with their white paper that is possible well, i just i just counted 32 percent of the pages in this white paper have code on them <laughs> you did that math <laughs> i just counted how many pages i found code blocks on yeah 18 so, of the again this could just be a really poor explained white paper that is possible but do you really want to invest in tokens and coins that have very poor explained white papers because if you have a poorly explained or, or poorly um poorly made white paper is that some it isn't that isn't it fair to say that's indicative of possibly a bigger problem outside of the white paper and the people developing the token or coin itself so again, my I, going into this podcast, I had a very different um, tone and way in which I wanted to talk about Fermachain. Um, but again, kudos to Brett for digging a little deeper than even I did on this, because I, I think the disparity in the amount we researched this coin going into it brought up a really valuable lesson that I realized um, thinking about this token and other tokens and coins in general, which is... When you think you know the coin or token, do a little bit more research. Um, because in examples like this, me being the example of not doing enough research, um, you're going to realize some of these coins and tokens are suspicious in nature, and it's probably not prudent to be investing in them, at least not without 
more understanding or clarity from either the white paper or sources outside of the white paper, such as maybe the website um, that give you some clarity. So again, my point is I'm, I'm basically just trying to make an example out of myself of make sure you do your research because honestly, like I, to an extent, maybe I'm being unfairly critical of myself, but to an extent, I made a mistake on preparing for this because I didn't prepare quite as much as Brett did in terms of digging into the guts of this. And he pointed out some really fair um, pushback against this token. So again, I mean, yeah, like you said, it could just it could just be that they haven't updated their website yet. They still haven't released the white paper. But when you have like entire road, like milestones missing from your roadmap, and you're not even like pushing out information for 2022, and things aren't explained as thoroughly as maybe they should be, especially with something handling important legal documents, like a lot of people like they kind of want you to, um, that's kind of a problem in my opinion it, it, it's a red flag at least it could just be poor communication yeah and it i'm not be great yeah and i'm yeah. not saying this is a trash token i am saying that they have done a poor job explaining the token it's it, what it not necessarily what it's trying to do but exactly how it's trying to do it and again when you have a third of your white paper that's code it's not exactly the most organized yeah, thing makes, I've ever seen. <laughs> it makes me wonder what their technical white paper is going to look like. And it makes you wonder how organized they are behind the scenes working on this. Right. But again, that's pretty much all we have for this week. Uh, learn that lesson from me. And uh, we will catch you guys next week. Clink.